0: Okay, Boket everybody. Um, I hope everybody has a, what my teacher used to call a hymn sheet, but I don't, I'm not going to explain what that is. A hymn sheet, but you, if you know what I mean. A um, bit more than hymns. Um, firstly, just say how delightful it is to be back here. Uh, it was uh, such a, a ta'anug, it was a pleasure to be involved with this group Um, during during some of the Parshiyot of Breshid. And now we're coming to Shemot and uh, it's nice to sort of kick off Shemot with you as well. Um, Before we start, I just want to dedicate this year in memory of a friend that I hadn't seen for many years but unfortunately passed away last week from London, somebody called Benny Tiefenbrunner. Um, Mrs. Tiefenbrunner's mother, I think was a teacher at the menorah, I think for years. I think she was a teacher in one of the schools in London. Uh, Benny was a contemporary and uh, unfortunately really passed away at a very young age. Uh, and I want to dedicate this year in his memory. It should be uh, for a blessing for his neshama. And really we should only celebrate smachot together. Um, ah, okay. Okay, that's also important. Um, I think on the email you gave, the, I don't remember the name, but... Um, again, we should mention. Uh, for Shlaim, I'm very concerned that you know we're all being very um, not the wording different because that's not the word, but we're definitely not as serious about COVID. I think he has COVID. Is that right? I, uh, I think so. Yeah. So we just got to be a little bit more vigilant. If you haven't had your shots, or as the Brits would call it, haven't had your jab, then please make sure you get it. You know, as soon as you can possibly arrange it. Um, Alright, we are going to look at parashat barishi, parashat shemot, excuse Shemot, and we're going to be talking uh, a little bit from the beginning, a little bit from the middle, and a little bit from the end. Right? There's so much material, such a rich parsha that in an hour to uh, talk about the whole parsha, I think is um, very foolhardy, it's just you're never going to get through it. But what I want to show you, a little bit from the beginning, something which uh, you may have heard before, some of you. Um, and this is a very curious item. We know that we're told in the, in the Parsha, and I just want to quote the Pasuk, but I brought my Chumash, just going to get it out, the, just there we go, the famous Pasuk, we, we've read it already twice this week, B'nei Yisrael, Poru Suva, yerubuvi, v'yatsvi mod mod. Right? They increased and multiplied, and whatever translation you can fit into those words, it basically, we know that there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 words, and, and the land was filled with them, and the famous Rashi comment, 6 words, 6 children. Every time a woman gave birth, I don't really want to elaborate on this point, because it really is mind-blowing. The whole story of, of, of the Jews in Egypt is very mind-blowing. Uh, there's a couple of uh, uh, significant issues, which I hope maybe we'll clear up today. Uh, and Firstly, this question of six uh, children each time. Um, on the page in front of you, at number one, or A as I've called it, dealing with the numbers, uh, there's a very interesting piece from Rabbi Zalman Sarovsky. Zalman Sarotsky was one of the uh, very significant leaders. He got here saved from the... Uh, um, from, from Europe and he arrived in Israel I think 1940s and passed away in 1965 it was a very very uh, good uh, darshan and uh, many people uh, I think uh, still remember his drashot and his father-in-law was a very very famous gentleman by the name of Blazer Gordon and I've just brought here before we just read what Rabbi Gordon writes um, just a historical note again for those who come from London it's very curious that Reblazer Gordon, this very great Ga'on, the Telzer Rosh Yeshiva, we know there's Tells Yeshiva in Cleveland, Ohio, for those who maybe have come from there or been there, and there is Telstone, which is just up the road here, which is also a branch of the organization, the, tel- the original Tells Yeshiva from, from Lithuania. And the Rosh Yeshiva, Reblazer Gordon, um, was really world-famous, absolutely world-famous in terms of his, ter- his Torah teaching. Even to this day in the yeshivot, they study his books. And it's a, it's a curious story, and it's a strange story, that in fact he's buried, you would tell, uh, you know, if I ask you, where is he buried? You'll say to me, well, probably, probably Lithuania, maybe Ushalayim, who knows, and the answer is he's buried in Edmonton, London. Not Edmonton, Canada, Edmonton, London. Fascinating, I, I saw his kava... Uh, a few years ago, when I was looking for my grandparents' uh, tombstones there, they're both buried in Edmonton, which is an old cemetery in North London. And there's a big OL, there's a big uh, uh, building there, and it's Reblazer Gordon who's buried there. So I did a bit of research. I, I, you know, it struck me, what, why is he buried there? He's from Lithuania. What was he, what, you know, what's the connection? Um, and it turns out, it's a rather sad story, What he came to London, tells... The original city had a fire, a very serious fire, 1908. And um, a lot of the buildings burnt down, and he was desperate to revive the city, to revive the, I think even the yeshiva buildings were affected. I remember those says, what, what did they build? It probably would, right? And uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty scary. And he needed to fundraise. And he, was, uh, he had a heart condition. He was, really wasn't a well man. But for the yeshiva, he literally traveled as far as he could go, and he came to London. And they arranged um, what we call, I suppose in America it's called a parlor meeting. I know what they call it in England. Getting together, get a few asherim together to try and raise money. And he came to the parlor meeting and he got a sound rejection from everybody. It was really, really quite scandalous what happened. And he was so distraught at the end of the meeting that he went out, and walking along the streets of London, probably east end of London, Whitechapel, the name of the neighborhood. He collapsed and unfortunately he died on the street. And he is buried in Edmonton. And the story goes that when people heard about this, firstly, the community was horrendously embarrassed by what, 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 what had not happened. They didn't support it. And they didn't even realize how great this man was. Um, and secondly, the leviathan uh, I tried to get a picture of the leviathan I couldn't. Uh, it's in the archive of the London Jewish newspaper called the Jewish Chronicle. Uh, and one can, If you can access the archives, you can look it up. It was the biggest Leviat ever in London. 50,000 people came to this Leviathan. Unbelievable. And if you know the neighborhood, you know, it must have been... Must, it's like the Leviahs in B'nai B'rach. You know, the whole... Everything shuts down for, for 10 miles around. And that must have happened in London on that day. the Yad'sai is coming up, the 4th of Adar. Uh, and again, may his merit protect us. So that's a little bit of a historical note. I just wanted to bring you uh, that item, because Blazer Gordon really was a, was a gaon olam. He was an unbelievable gaon. And in the piece at the bottom here, he, uh, there's a story. Rabbi Sarovsky brings this from Rabbi Gordon. And he says Rabbi Gordon was once approached by a musk, someone who I don't think was, was anti-religious, but was a questioner. A gentleman who asked him, I, "I'm not sure about this six babies, you know, each time. Ha, how does that work out? How is that uh, not? To, how is it possible? But you know, does it really make sense?" And he asked Rabbi Gordon for an explanation. And Rabbi Gordon came out with something which is quite remarkable. He said, "Look at the numbers. I'll just show you a little bit here on what he wrote." And again, the uh, always we say, "Otiyot The the words make you smart. So let's just look at the um where it is at the bottom of page 1 on the side where there's an asterisk right and kochavit and it says upam ana moriv chameh agona mitzi moron reblaze golden zeh zalekot chivraka av beitim varam detels rashivel tells chuvani zeh nitzachad leksil mitchakem there was a gentleman who thought he was being smart and he asked them a question And he was questioning this whole tradition, the rabbinic tradition of six in one shot. Right? Six babies each time. And and this man was claiming, it's far-fetched, to put it mildly. And Rabbi Gordon said to him, let's open up a chumash. Are you prepared to study chumash with me? And the man said, yes, I am prepared to study chumash. And it's very interesting. He said, Let's look, firstly, at the number of Jews that came out of Egypt. And again, we know, uh, this is a little bit of math, but I'll I'll try and simplify it. 600,000 men between 20 and 60, right? So if you then talk about the children, and you talk about the people over the age of 60, traditionally you double it. Approximately 1.2 million males come out of Mitzrayim. 1.2 million males. That's information uh, point number one. He on the third paragraph, right, and um, I'll just read it if you if you're with me in the same uh, section at the bottom on page one, the top line of the third paragraph. My father in law said to this man, right even though you say statistics go against the idea of six in one shot, I'll bring you a proof. And it's something from the Torah. Uh, go to the next line, the end of the fourth line, I'm going to prove it to you, they had six in each birth, and he said, let's look at the number of firstborn, he said, it's very curious, when at the end of, um, uh, not the, end, the beginning I think, of Sefer Bamidbar, it says the number of firstborn children, 22,000, that's a number, you can check it out, I should have brought it on the page, but it's written, I think he brings it in this particular paragraph. 22,000, now if you do your math, if you've got your uh, computer with you or your, uh, your uh, whatever, your, your cell phone or whatever it is, you can, you've got a calculator on there. If you do the 1.2 million which is the number of males that we, we, we believe came out of Egypt and you divide it by 22,000 firstborn, which is referring to the male firstborns, then amazingly, you come out with a number which I believe is 1.2 million divided by 22,000 comes out at 55. 55. So each family, because each firstborn is, represents one family. So you have 22,000 firstborn, you have each family of 55 children, right? Because that's how it works out. So you'll say to me, Kanaan Nahara, 55 children, mean, we talk about grandchildren, and Ninim, you know, if one's to have such a, a large family. And it's, it's, uh, today we're seeing that, it's beautiful. But the reality in those days, how did this play out? And says Rabbi, Rabbi Sarovsky, in the name of his father in law, he says, if you think about it, how many pregnancies in reality did the women have? The average life expectancy, like we say, Shivim Shana Shmonim who knows, maybe 70 years. He claims that maybe the, the average life um, um, time number of pregnancies that women would uh, have in that peri- in time period would be approximately 10 pregnancies. Okay? Which I guess is probably true even today. You know, we, we, uh, uh, that's the sort of number we would put on it today as well. So he says, do the math. It's 55 per family, 10 pregnancies. How many have you got in each pregnancy? How many babies are born? Five babies. Five to six children. Six in one shot. So he says, if you take the, the turret information plus what we know about the numbers that came out of Egypt, it's not so far-fetched to understand that we're talking about five or six children at each time that a woman gave birth, which gives the women eventually that number of children that works out according to the number of firstborn, dividing it into the number of males that came out of Egypt, and there you've got your six in every birth that took place. Right, Whether that registered with you or not, I leave you to think about it. Uh, Rav Gordon said, at the time he said, this is something which, if you follow that that's a numbering system in the Torah, then you've got at least a framework in which to understand how this number came about. Not just because the number of words, like I said before, but also, if you actually do the math, it does seem to um, give a number which is... You know, realistically, within, within the number that Chazal mentioned. Five to six children each time, right? What I've always wondered is about how many midwives were working at that time. And of course, <laughs> Chazal say there were the two famous midwives, Shifra and Pua. Right? That's fine. But two for that, you know, for those multiple births all the time, with all due respect, you know, they're on strike all over the way, even in New York now. The <laughs> nurses are on strike. And the reality of it is, you know, with all due respect, I think all the midwives will be out on strike immediately. This will be impossible to deal with. And of course, Chazal say that they went into the field and they gave birth by themselves. Sorry? Uh, can, can, I, can I contradict a little bit in this sense? As I hear once that when, uh, when the fifth, only a fifth of the, of the Israeli, of the army, came out of Correct and, correct, and And, and, and Chumashim there means that uh, only the adults were, uh, like 80% of the people passed away, but then we are only talking about the adults. Correct. Chumashim means that because the, the 20% that were staying, they took over the children from the 80% that the people, That's also what leads to the issue. Also, level. with that. Meaning, they might not have had everybody six children at once, but because the old after like, in the end of the day there were so many children to they, adopt from the other ones they came to like Keilo having six absolutely absolutely f- explain that too because it would not make uh, any discomfort She so wouldn't have had uh, six to each time but taking yeah, in all yeah. other children putting it, it all to together perfect way. and there, there is a you target me on a ton about that it's fascinating yeah. okay yeah. so Thank you for that, because that's also an addition to it. I'm just going on the bare math of what, what we see from yeah, the Torah, and that is pretty amazing. Yeah, if you think about it, it works out at, right. you know, for uh, every pregnancy, six children, please. First, I would say six days of creation. Ah, okay. You couldn't do it without the six... couldn't do anything without the six days of creation. Okay. You go on to all the other sixes and whatever. And then you work it out. Yeah, it's... It, it's uh, there's room here for, you know... Uh, and who knows what, but I, I, I just love the fact that, you know, that Rabbi Gordon was prepared to take on the question and say to the man, you're, you're asking about statistics, here we go, let me show you a little bit of a framework from the Torah, which surprisingly fits into the rabbinic uh, definition of what was going on. So I just thought, you know, I threw that out. He's I Just look at the last words on, the, on page two, and he says, V'dova zeh mitzvah lefarseim so Rabbi Soroskin points out From his father-in-law It's a mitzvah to, to, to publicize what we just studied that, that item that You know the fact at the end of the day The rabbinic calculation Not so far from the reality If you take the numbers According to the way the Torah presents it So I leave you to ponder on that And to think about it But I think it's, it's, it's really something Worthy of note The big issue which I want to deal with, is something which has bothered me for many, many years. I've got it here on page 2. And have a look at these Pesukim, and we'll uh, immediately, you know, be reminded of something that we all know. Uh, In the negotiation that eventually Moshe has with Pharaoh, and even before that, there is mention over and over again of the Jews leaving Egypt for three days. Right? It says they'll go for three days, to make an offering, then they'll come back. And it says it again, and again I've got here, how many references? One, two, three, four. Four references, or probably even more references, uh, allusions to the fact that Am Yisrael, it seems to be part of what was going on, is to say they're going to leave for three days, and then they're going to come back. And of course Pharaoh in the Empire says, no, he, uh, he hardened his heart, and he says, you're not even going for three days, and that's when the the whole process of Exodus really kicked in. However, what is this three days? In the end of the day, and this is a question which was raised by Shlomo Goran, and I think the Rachaim originally raised this question as well. Three, If you're saying to Parah, we're going for three days, and you don't mean it. There is a concept which is called in, in the Hebrew, and we know this concept very well, called Geneva Da you're actually stealing the mind. What, what's Geneva done? One of the classic examples, I don't want to bring this as, a, as a, an, any more than an example, but if you go into a store and you drive the... Um, the, the assistant crazy for an hour trying on every dress in the store every man if he tries on every pair of pants in the store and then he walks out buying nothing then there is a danger that halachically there is a question have you committed something called G'nei vada? you led the person to think that something was going to happen a sale was going to take place and then you turn around and just walk out. okay that is again one example but there are many many examples example where you've got to be careful not literally means to steal the mind of the person, to deceive the person in that kind of way, which leads to disappointment or, or potentially even something even worse. The Gemara talks about it in, in, in quite great detail. And Rabbi Garin asked the question, isn't this Ganeva done on Pharaoh? <laughs> At the end of the day, you're saying to him, three days, I'm going out for three days. But if you're not going out for three days, if you go out, you're going to go out and never come back. So what's going on I will just show you the Sukim listen to this First it's on page 2 and it's this I call it the 3 day ploy and first is Shmor chapter 3 ve shamol this is God talking to Moshe uh, the burning bush story ubata atav ziknayso al melekh nisay go to the king of Egypt va martemelo say to the shem God has called to us ve atan nalchanah derekh yamim ba mitba We'll go for three days in the desert. Three days, right? And then it goes on in chapter five, the next quote. And then they said that the God of the Hebrews has called to us. When Moshe arrives in Mitzrayim. Again, three days. And then chapter eight of Shemot. Again, three days. Right? What's going on? Why talk about this three-day period? Is the three-day period something which is, you're, you're just playing along with Pharaoh? I mean, at the end of the day, we're talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, Ishamet. And to to suggest that there is a, 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 you know, there's kind of a trick going on here, it's it's very difficult to suggest that. I I wouldn't want to suggest such a thing. Look at the the next line, which is all part of that pasuk. uh, Don't go far. So Pharaoh originally says, yeah, you can go, but only a short distance, essentially three days. And then chapter 10, they came back to Pharaoh, finally, when all these things really came to a head, after the plagues, and says, who's going? will go with our, our children, our, our old people, our young people, all our animals. So he said to them, I'm not going to let everybody go. Only the men. And and he says, "You can go and serve God." That's what you want. And again, suggestion is only on a very limited basis. Is he prepared to let them leave the country? So there is this toing and froing all the time about three days. What is this whole thing of three days? Right. In the end of the day, what should have happened? A simple negotiation. Pharaoh says no. Moshe says yes. They they kind of get together. You know, maybe they'll have a, a, someone in the middle of metavech or someone to to help them out. And in the end, you know, Pharaoh will have to say yes, and Moshe will say goodbye, and that's the end of the story. But what's this, you know, playing around, come for three days, and maybe yes, and maybe no? It's strange. And it's a theme. It's come from Shemot chapter 3 right through to Shemot chapter 10. And Rav Garin says something here, which I can honestly say for me, it changed the whole story. It really did change the story of the Siem. It's Mitzrayim. Right. It's very hard when you've been learning Chumash for a long time to, to get to get a kick out of you know, the, the story. We all get it. You know what I mean. We learn the story, and they're beautiful stories, and they're inspirational stories, and the, the, everything is fabulous. But the reality is, to get something a khidish, something which I haven't really appreciated before, is really very exciting. So listen to this. I'll show you this paragraph, the bottom of page 2, it's a it, it's a bombshell. He says this is such a problem, this three day ploy, what's going on? Nirel Khadesh Rivgar is a very big M he really was he he stuck his neck out in, in many ways in halacha as well. But certainly here in his safe, is beautiful, it says I want to suggest the following. Whoever thought of that? The Exodus was going to go in two stages. Wow. I thought Exodus means, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. No. They were going to do a two-stage Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And it's unbelievable. And the three days is the first stage of the Exodus. Let's get them out for three days, and then they'll come back. So you'll say to me, what's the point of that? Right, the whole nation out and back in three days. I mean, you know, you, you try taking a bunch of kids on a trip for half a day, and you'll realize how difficult it is. And you're taking a whole nation for three days. Logistics. I mean, it's mind blowing. But what's going on? here? listen to this. It says uh, the third line of that of that paragraph. Come on, Shneema. Shleshi Derekshlechi Yomim B'aminav. And this Hashem again a three day festival in the in the uh, in the desert. You know, and that's what we're going to do now. And the Rambam explains what's going on. And this links a little bit to what was said before. Katav, the Rambam explains, this is actually in the Rambam Hilchot Avodat Zara. So it's in his Halacha. I thought it was Morin but it's not. Rambam writes, the end of the fourth line. The Jews were in Egypt for a long time. And you know what? I'm, I'm going to have to say this, even though it might disappoint everybody in the room. I use the expression at the bottom, Plus ça change. change here means that when Amisro is living in a Gola, and they get established, in the, even if they're there as slaves, they're established in the Gola, essentially something happens which history repeats itself over and over again. And it's called assimilation. And boy, we, we're feeling this at the moment. Um, in America, it's just it's frightening. I mean, the, the numbers are just up and up and up. Right, seventy seventy five percent simulation. Every second marriage in America of a Jew is to a non Jew, and and this is going on, which is really really scary and frightening, and is is a concern for everybody. Every you know anyone in education, for instance, is should be very very concerned, as as should we all. And he says in Egypt, you know what, things happen of a similar nature. And back to the page, fifth line, middle of the line, the Chazruel Mod Maasein. This is Rama. Uh, we know that we, there's a tradition the Jews went down to the 49th level of Tumat. What does that mean? That they served idolatry. Except for the Levim, who stood by the tradition of their fathers, meaning they remained loyal to God. So they did not do idolatry. And it seems that in Egypt, everything that Avram had planted in the world as Amisra, the beginning of the Jewish people, was being uprooted. Everything was disappearing. <speaking> in, <Hebrew> in other words, without God's help, keeping the promise to Avram to bring the Jews out, also, that's what Moshe Rabbeinu did. And says Rabbi Goran, this is a mind-blow. Wow. The majority of Jews assimilated in Egypt. It's it's staggering. They didn't want to leave. They didn't want to leave. And he brings an argument, if you go to page 3, which I'm not going to go through from the Gemara Sanhedrin, um, where he says that the percentage was very, was very small. If we go from that top paragraph, one, two, three, four, uh, five lines down. Um, just one second. Where am I going? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Six, seven lines down. And this is what was mentioned before. When it says in Shmo chapter thirteen, the Hamishim or Hamushim alubane Israel The Jews went out. Hamushim literally means with weapons. But the rabbis play on the word chamushim from the word chamesh, five. Piresh Rashi, dovaachei chamushim, mechumashim, echad mechamisha yatzu, only one in five left Egypt. Wow. Dalat chalakim metu b'shloosh yimei four-fifths of the people died during the darkness. Which again, doesn't bear thinking about when you're talking in those numbers, it's a, it's, it's a discussion which I can't even begin to have because it's just overwhelming. But listen to this Who are the four fifths? They must be the ones who are assimilated. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay in the, as the Possek says, the flesh pots of Egypt. They want to leave. It's too good for us. It's too, pardon me for saying this, it's too good for us where we live in, those places in Chhudsar. It's be it New York, be it London, be it whatever. It's, 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 you know, we don't want to leave it. Were these four fifths enslaved? And the, the Levine were not, but that's, they were. But again, there's so many issues about how many were enslaved and how long the slavery really lasted. It wasn't 210 years of slavery, I think they say maximum 86 years. So there has to have been, between 210 and 86, a lot of interaction between the Jewish population. What, what are the Jews good at? We're good at e- economics, right? So they must have kicked in on the Egyptian economy, as they have done in every other country where the Jews have lived. It's, 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 my, this is truly mind-blowing. And therefore, what was the whole idea? Think about this for a second. Taking them out for three days would be a test. Who is going to come on the initial pilot trip to leave Egypt? And of course, what is, the, what is the mindset? That those who are prepared to step up and leave Egypt, even for a temporary period of time, they're the ones we know that really want to leave. And we're good to go when, when, when we get the signal. After Makat B'chorot, they're the ones that are going to leave. What happens to the rest? They'll stay in Egypt and leave Bolel and they'll disappear. But they won't necessarily die in a plague of three days uh, of the darkness. But of course, what happened was that it didn't work out like that. The three-day, I'm not calling it vacation, but the three-day trip out of Egypt in the end was nixed. But the interesting thing is that the suggestion of the three-day trip is that it was there as an option to test the water. Who is going to want to go and who is going to want to stay? I thought to myself, the Jewish agency... If they gave every Jew in America a ticket to come to Israel for three days, how many of those Jews would really take, the, take the, the ticket? There's birthright. Baruch Hashem, you're bringing the young people to Israel. In whatever way you bring them, the fact is, they come there. they'll see something Jewish. For many of them, the first Jewish experience in their lives. But what about the rank and file? You know, the 60% of vote Democrat who have never been to Israel. Staggering statistic. How many American Jews have never visited Israel? Uh, they believe all the propaganda about Israel, but they've never been here. <coughs> and, and again, you wonder what would have happened. Give them the ticket and see whether they'll come. I don't know. I'm really not sure. But listen to this final thing. It's, 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 I tell you, it really is mind blowing. So he says, This is the second paragraph on page three, the Hebrew. So there's two stage redemption three days followed by permanent so the three days is not stealing the mind of Pharaoh it's testing the Jewish people who wants to go and who doesn't want to go is your passport in order is your passport not in order are you ready to leave who is faithful to the tradition of the Avod Abraham Isaac and Jacob. to leave behind the abominations of Egypt who is not prepared to go so we can test it. Three days. Who's going to prepare to make that short trip and who is not? And just on the next line in the middle, they're the ones that were fitting to be redeemed if they're prepared to go the ones that weren't prepared to go to go for three days to make an offering to God they're so uh, assimilated into, into the Egyptian society they're never going to leave it's a very, fr- very scary scenario that the rabbi is painting here uh, thinking about the Monday situation in 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 uh, in, in, in the, what we call the Gola, but I don't want to really think about that too much. But he says like this, and look at the next paragraph. Zodaita tochnit hashamayim. He says this was a heavenly plan. So the reality of the three days is not—it's not a ploy. It's a reality. It Was going to test the Jew. They were come they, the ones who were prepared to come would then be the ones that signed on the, on the as you say, on the dotted line. And then they and then the rest would have to be left behind. And, and that would be you know one day they'll come like they come to Spain and they find a church which had a a Magen David once upon a time had a mezuzah. And you say, Jews used to live here. I remember when I went to Poland, you see the indentations on the doors, right where the mezuzahs used to be. Um, it's just, again, so sad when you go there. And look what, just the last paragraph here. That's days, that this could happen again, that just will stay there, and that's it. That's, that's, that's what really bothers me. And the more that people get head up, particularly in the, what I call the anti-Zionist rhetoric, I I know Zionism is not perfect. I know secular Zionism is particularly not perfect. But the rhetoric becomes the distinction, and and you're you're expecting that distinction between what I'm calling Medina Israel and Eretz Israel sometimes just gets blurred. And people become so bound. I hear these demonstrations, I saw them in New York, where, you know, sort of cursing out the Israeli government and everything else. That's a very dangerous game to play, because you're disconnecting from Israel, what Israel means in the 21st century. And Nothing is perfect, and I have realized all the religious objections, and I I, I appreciate that. But to go to that extreme does create a disconnect, which one day, I don't know, Mashiach comes and says, go to Israel, we're in Williamsburg, what's going to be better for us? I'm not sure what people are going to say. I hope they make the right decision. I really do.
1: Oh, very few came. Very few. 40,000. And they stayed behind.
0: Yeah, and today 7 million Jews in Israel. One Jew goes on the Temple Mount for 15 minutes, may not like the gentleman. Next thing you know, the United Nations having an emergency meeting. What a mad world we're living in. It's not normal. It's really not normal. Whether you like the politics or not, but for one Jew to go on the Temple Mount, you're going to create a, that Russia and China, everybody else is going to get involved. It's, it's truly mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. This is this is unfortunately what we're living at the moment. But site, we know that. Listen, it, it's it's incredible. It is quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary. That's the word I would use. Probably even more so. I'd say that's an understatement. Um, I just want to finish the last paragraph here, and then we've got one final item, which is delicious. The the final item I've saved for the end. But he says, (laughs) What happened was Pharaoh sort of spoiled the whole thing, because he said no to the whole concept of stage one. Three days is out, and then of course at that point, as I said on the side, second stage had to be implemented implemented immediately, the immediate exodus after the the Makkah b'chorot. Uh, Peril hardened his heart, and then, of course, four-fifths died during the Chosha, as we know it, either from the Pasuk or from the Midrash. What Rav Goran has said, which I think is so interesting, is that the three-day theme, which, to me, was always the elephant in the room, it's, it's coming up again and again. I never understood what this three days was all about. If we're going, we're going. If we're staying, we're staying. What, what's the three day? And he explains it so beautifully that this was a test. It wasn't trying to say to Pharaoh, we're trying to pull the wool over your eyes, Was saying to, to, to the Jewish people, are you prepared to leave? And the three-day test is something which repeats itself over and over until Pharaoh says no, and then that's it. That's 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 shelved, and then the Yitzhak Mitzrayim takes place. Uh, Mind-blown. I mean, to me, Chidush Gadol, absolutely incredible. The last item, i, I I, I'm just so desperate to, to get to this last item that I, I apologize if I'm doing this too quickly. Um, point number three. We've gone top, beginning of the Parsha. We've gone what I call middle. We're now in the middle of the Parsha with the three days, the theme, beginning. Parsha Shama of course, it carries through next week and the week after. And now we're going to go to the bottom of the Parsha. Right? The bottom of the night. We're right at the end of the Parsha. And we're going to see something which is truly spectacular. I mentioned in a sheer... Oh, it must have been oh, six months ago. Oh, gosh. Was it that long ago? Five or six months ago, um, Jakob Kamineski. I know some, some people actually knew him and were very uh, aware, uh, connected with him. Very, very special. Man. I'm sorry I never met him. Um, and his safer, the Sefer MS Liakov is a fabulous safer, Fabulous. I actually, when it came out, I sent... Uh, I, got, I went to the, the bank in London because I was sitting in England. I sent dollars to Rabbi Ram Kamineski, one of the sons. He sent me back change. Actually, I paid too much for it. Got the original copy of the The it article. Was, it was a volume. It was brought out again and it was added to, but I have the original one. Um, he says the following. We know by the end of Parashat big trouble, right? The Jews are really being oppressed by the um, Paro and by the Egyptians. And this pasuk, right at the end of the parasha, the bottom of page three, Shema, chapter five, verse nine. Remember, the member the story is, the work gets more intense. Pharaoh says, "Do not Yeshua means to play around. Do not indulge in words of Sheker, of things which are false." And of course, it's unclear to us what does that mean? So if you turn over to the fourth page, you'll see there is Midrash Rabbah. And Midrash Rabbah, Shemot Rabbah, says the following. Top of page four. The Jews had books. When have we ever been far away from books or manuscripts? And they had manuscripts. What were the manuscripts? Shayu They would study them from Shabbos to Shabbos. They had text, they couldn't study during the week, so they had their Shabbos, you know, like here, you go to shul, you get a hundred pamphlets thrown in your face. I'm not sure, half of them, I don't know what, what, it, what they are about, uh, more about advertising, I think, but whatever. The reality of it is, that's what they had, they had um, um, manuscripts. Lomar, to tell them, Shachodesh Baruch Go along to promise them a redemption. The fish are you knocking in because originally they had Saturday off they didn 't have to work Saturday. Saturday.hem Saoh now turned nasty, even more nasty than he was, and he said,' it's going to get worse with the people of the work what does that mean? Are you? Do not take those manuscripts. you have to put them away because i 'm not giving you time to study them. Even Shabbat, you are on and not off shabbat do not rest on Shabbos. So Rav Yaakov says, what was in these manuscripts? What was the dvarim niflaim that gave them such a chizr? He says the following, and it, it's, I don't know, it just it brings me to tears thinking about this. The the, the the psalm that we say every Friday night to welcome in the Shabbat, right, if you go to Kabbalah Shabbat, you're stubborn at home, we all know Shabbos begins one of the one of the sort of you know the, the cutoff points when you say Mizmor Shir L'Yom HaShabbat, the Psalm in praise of the day of Shabbat. The only problem is when you actually look at Mizmor Shir L'Yom HaShabbat and look at all the words in Mizmor Shir HaShabbat, there's nothing there about Shabbos. It's absolutely devoid of any reference to Shabbat, right? Um, Oh, Okay, it's a beautiful story. I, my Rebbe in London, my teacher, Reb um, Lopian Gershon Lopian, uh, when he was 17, it was already not well. Uh, I sent him a letter. I was already in the States and I wrote him. I said, Reb Gershon, I want to issue the bracha of your grandfather. His grandfather, Rebbe Elie Lopian, came to Ert Israel, came to Israel in 1951. And he wanted to sit and learn for the rest of his life. And they heard that the great Mashkiach, he was in London for 25 years, came to Israel, and they didn't want to leave him alone. And they wanted him to be Mashkiach in Kfar Hasidim, which is right in the north of Israel. And he, didn't, he wasn't sure, what would he do, should he go? He was in his 70s, he was a, not a youngster anymore. So he went to the Chazanish, Chazanish was still alive, Rav Karalitz in Bnei Brak. And Rav Karalitz looked at him, said, Rebellia, he says, we say every Friday night, O the Seva, even though you've reached an old age, to you should always be eternally young that was the bracha he gave him and he was the Mashkia for another 20 years he died in 1970 unbelievable rebellion was really something else so I wrote to his, his grandson I said, Gersh, you should always get the same bracha to live as long as you can and Nebuchadnezzar didn't live to 90 he died I think he was 73 when he passed away but you know it was, it was, I thought it was a, 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 an idea to share with a rebbe um, says Rav Rav Kamenetsky, and he says incredible concept. He said, "What were these Megillah? What was what were they reading? They were reading Miz Shil Yom In fact, the tradition is that there's ten Psalms from Psalm ninety, Sadik, through to ninety-nine. All of those Psalms were written Tefillah LeMoshe. And one of them begins Tefillah Moshe. Is actually written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Some say Miz Shil Yom was." Added in by Moshe, but actually written by Adam. I mean, there's all different traditions, but not by David and Melech. Okay, that's a, a good quiz question. Who wrote the book of Psalm? Yes, David and Melech, but not all of it. There are a lot of chunks. I think the rabbis say 10 people, 10 different authors of the book of Tehillim. The reality is, Mizma Yom Shabbat was something they had in their hands every week. What does Mizma Yom Shabbat talk about? He talks about the question of Tzaddik V'ralo, Rasha Tovla. right? That you have this question. Look at the wording of Mizma Shilam Hashavah. I don't know if you can just pass me a siddur. There must be a siddur on the, because I didn't bring a siddur with me. By the time I fu- ah, perfect. Just wanna, I'll, I'll just read out. I'll even read out in the English, because you'll see what. The con- oh, sorry. Sorry. Thank you. Um, and it says the following, and we know it because, again, if you're if you in the good Yekish shuls, we actually sing the tune for this. Uh, Dublin Embroyers, they have a whole choir singing this, so it's really beautiful. Um, and it says the following It's a song of Sabbath. It is good to thank Hashem. Firstly, we're talking about the plus side. Thank Hashem for things that he's done for us. Um, and then it goes on, right in the middle A boor cannot know, a fool cannot understand this. When the wicked bloom like grass and all the doers of iniquity blossom, it is to destroy them till eternity, and you remain exalted, Hashem. For behold, your enemies. Behold, your enemies shall perish, dispersed all the doers of iniquity as exalted. It said, we, we, we know this, but it's not to do with Shabbos. It's to do with good people having a very tough time, and evil people prospering, and the, 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 the hope, the plan, the, the, the prayers to look forward to a day when righteousness will prevail. They will still be fruitful in all days, vigorous and fresh. They will be declared, Shem is just my rock in whom there is no wrong. So all of this was being read every Shabbos in Mitzrayim. It was done in order to give Am Yisrael a chizuk. They would take it to their bottom in Remember, Yehuda was sent on a pilot trip to Mitzrayim to open up the yeshiva. And they had in Goshen and in various other places different yeshiva, different places of study. So what happened was that you had this... These incredible manuscripts. Moshe Rabbeinu wrote this stuff. And in fact, we say it in Kabbalat Shabbat, we read it every Friday night. <speaking in Hebrew> that these are Psalms which are Psalms of encouragement, Psalms of chizur. <speaking in Hebrew> these are fantastic Psalms of, of, of inspiration. These were what the Jews of Egypt were surviving on. When they read this stuff, it gave them a chizah. Moshe was saying to them, be inspired. Realize that this is only a temporary moment in your existence. You're going to become free. You're going to become, not only free, you're going to become a nation, a light to the whole world. As they say in America, hang in there. You've just got to continue and, 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 and hope for the best. And says Rav Rav, uh, uh, Rav Kameneski, so beautifully. He says, Pharaoh knew this. Pharaoh was wicked. He knew that you take away this inspiration, you hit the Jews where it hurts. Because they couldn't sit and study this for, for, for that whole period of time. And he understood what that meant to them, and this was why it was so evil. His decree, Al Al Tish, what's it say? Al uh, Mishabat, Shabbat. Don't use these megillot um, anymore from Shabbat to Shabbat and in fact Rav, Rav Kamenetsky points out in the last paragraph and I'll leave you just to look at this uh, uh, you can take these away and look at it uh, yourselves but he says a lefi this is page 4 the last Hebrew paragraph lefi now what I explain now bacha, the gemara says Moshe sefer he wrote the book of job you ever studied the book of job pretty depressing it's about a guy, he was a good guy, and he had t- terrible Taurus, Gehakt Taurus. And the reality is that, again, why would Moshe write such a book? He was trying to impress Am Yisra, you're going through a terrible time, Nebuch. It's so difficult, but remember, at the end of the day, y- Enoch does come out of it at the end, and you will come out of it in the end. It's, it's something which, you know, is, is the ultimate uh, support system for Am Yisrael. And he and he says Rabbi Kamaneski, so beautifully. <speaking in Hebrew> why write the book of Job? What's Moshe getting out of this? <speaking in Hebrew> the book is asking the question: Why did the why did the wicked prosper? Why did the tzaddikim suffer? So is kashim. Our said the Jews were really challenged on this. <speaking in Hebrew> Moshe wanted them to study the book to know what is written. Sometimes the answer is we don't know. But at least let's get to the point where we don't know. And we recognize that we don't know. But at least let's try. Maybe all of this was what the Jews read every Shabbos. This is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I just want to add one Nakuda because I'm coming to the end of my time here. I want to add one Nakuda which I wrote at the bottom here. The tradition of Kabbalat Shabbat, right? I think it's been a little bit hijacked, uh, pardon me saying so, with the, ver- with the tunes of a certain rabbi who, whether you like them or you don't like them, whether you like him, you don't like him, he was a special man, no question about that, but a lot of questions are still prevailing about the whole history, and I don't want to go into that. I was asked awkward questions by my students, I've got to tell you, and it's very hard to answer, but reality of it is, Kabbalat Shabbat is a phenomenal tefillah. Because what are we doing, Kabbalah Shabbat? We are talking about this, all this Megillah being read all over again. But why? Why were they being read over again? Think about it. Who introduced Kabbalah Shabbat? The Kabbalists in Safar. 15th century. 16th century. Rabbi Yosef, Cairo, Shlomo al you know all the famous names. Where were they all coming from, these guys? They were coming from Spain. Not only were they coming from Spain, they had a Kahila which was made up of people who ran away from Spain. Can you imagine, I can't imagine, can you imagine how soul-destroying what happened in Spain must have been to those people? They lived at the the, the, the glorious Spanish era of of Jews, and it's all gone. It's all been destroyed. Everything. They left. 500 years later, they want to give you a Spanish passport now, a Portuguese passport. Thank you very much. 500 years later, you, know, you threw us out, right? And you know as, as somebody said to me why would I want to go back to Poland and all these places because the reality is they threw us out not they threw us out they killed us so the rea- the, 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 the Kabbalists knew maybe this is why they introduced Kabbalah Shabbat because on Shabbos we have time to read these beautiful songs maybe to sing them don't get me wrong singing is good but on top of that thinking think about what the issues that they raise think about the beautiful ideas that they they, they give us and the tremendous chizr that they present to us, not only for the Jews of the 15th century, not only the Jews of the 16th century, I would argue Jews of the 21st century as well. post holocaust how inspirational it has to be that we can sit down again on Friday night, and if you dub them by the Safadi minions, I have Shashim as well on top of that, even, even more precious. But the reality of it is, to have these fantastic messages, the megillot are alive again, They are giving us this chizah. I know it's hard. We're living, we look around us and, you know, we see a world with, as I said, one Jew on the Harabai and the whole world goes crazy. We're not living in a normal world and COVIDs and all the other things that we have to deal with. But that Friday night service is so beautiful. Whether you do it at home, whether you do it in shul, the fact is those are the Megilot. Rabbi Kamenetsky speaks about, and we are Mishtashim. I love that word. Mishtashim. We're, 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 we're chewing them over all over again. Because we need that chizr. We need that message to be given to us. It's not all over. Am Yisrael remarkably. One final thought, Rabbi al Rabbi Al-Kavimdun, in the introduction to his siddur, he says, I know we've had credible miracles. The miracle of giving of the Torah. We had the miracle of Egypt. We had the miracle of this. The miracle of... You name it. He says the biggest nace, still without question, is the survival of the Jewish people. He wrote this 300 years ago. How much more so would he say it in the year 2023? The survival of us, not only survival, we're, we're, we, we go and we're in Eretz Yisrael. And look what look what's around us. It's just mind blowing, and that is something for chizuk. That's something that we can we can dwell on, and we can be inspired and Bezrat Hashem. Think about the chadodi. I just want to tell you one, one reason for a minute. You may have wondered, the tune changes in the middle. Why? So the halacha says, the minhogim say, minhogim say, because the second part of the chadodi should be a quicker tune than the first. da, 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 da. You know, we had the geranigan or whatever it is. And the answer is because that's symbolic of the, of the geula. We start off with a very slow tune maybe, but by the end of the Chordodi, we're singing a very fast tune. Symbolically, because the Chordodi, Boi Kala, is not just the Kala of Shabbat, but Boi Kala and Mashiach and everything that it represents. And that's the symbolism of the fast tune, that it should be quick, it should be happening, it should be coming. And that, what Rav Kamaneski has done here, is turned the whole Kabbalat Shabbat into what I would argue the most inspirational tefillah of the whole week. I think something to think about, Parashat Shemot, top, middle, and now the bottom. I hope it was something I hope something for you to take away Bezrat Hashem, next week next week, I look forward thank you everybody